Well, today we're starting a new message series. If you weren't with us over the last month, I encourage you to go online, listen to the messages on worship. Um, in fact, last week, I, I got a lot of responses through email and other means of people saying they're really helped in this process of how do I deal with pain in my life and get to a place where I actually, actually can honestly praise God. And it is possible and it is necessary to get to that place. And so I encourage you, if you weren't here last week, to go back and listen to that message. We are going to talk about relationships over the next month. That's been my habit for the month of May for uh, probably, I think, every year that I've been senior pastor because May is a very family-oriented month. We have Mother's Day. We have a Memorial Day. We have graduations. We have anniversaries. There are weddings going on, kids' graduations from elementary school, and all these things going on with families. So it seems very um, timely just to talk about relationships that we have. And there is one key ingredient to any relationship, whether friend to friend, parent to child, husband to wife, one characteristic that if you could perfect this, if you could really practice this in any relationship, I would promise you it would transform that relationship. It would, it would allow you to have a relationship that is enjoyable, that is healthy, that is enduring. And I know this because the Scripture says this kind of relationship won't fail if you do this. Now, to give you a little background on what that is, uh, when Jesus entered onto the scene, he came into a world that, in the Greek, kind of Greek-Roman culture there in Jerusalem, where people had an idea of what it meant to love someone. And that love um, had boundaries, had limitations. So I would love you as a family member. I would love you as a friend under certain conditions. And as long as you belong to the right race, as long as you're the right gender and the right age, because they had actually people who were outside their circle, outside that, that boundary of who they would love. So it was okay, actually, to hate people from other races, like the Samaritans. It was, it was okay to despise women and look down upon children. And so Jesus comes along, and Jesus takes a word that was rarely used in that culture. It's the word agape. And Jesus says, I am going to own this word, and I'm going to define the beauty of this word. And, and agape love, according to Jesus, looks like this. It is a love that thinks of the other person first. It is a love that is not a reaction to something in the other person, like, I love you because you work hard. I love you because you're pretty. It's a love that says, I love you because of who I am. I'm loving you in spite of who you are, good or bad. I, I love you regardless, because love comes for me. Now, love isn't a reflection of you. It's a love that is very giving, not taking. It's a love that's willing to give time and willing to give resources, willing even to lay one's life down for someone else. It's a love that's constantly sacrificing. It's a love that knows no boundaries. It doesn't favor one person over another. It's a love that's, that's inclusive. And Jesus, Jesus defined that as, as the kind of love that God has for us. And he demonstrated it when he went to the cross. In fact, I love the verse that says, while we were still sinners... God demonstrated his love for us in this, that Jesus went to the cross, again, for people who didn't deserve it, gave everything he had his whole life so that we could be reunited with God. That is agape love. It is the epitome of love. And he said, I'm going to delegate the responsibility to love now to you. It's going to be your job because all people will know that you are related to me, that you are my disciples if you love, if you agape like this. So we as believers um, are drawing upon the love that God has for us to learn to love people in a way that really is, is unworldly. It's not natural. 
but it's beautiful and it's transformational and it makes relationships that are long-lasting and wonderful. And so when you come to a chapter of the Bible that's known as the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, it's, it's probably one of the most poetic and beautiful descriptions of love ever written by a person. And yet this chapter follows a section of Scripture where Paul is telling the church at Corinth that God has given within the church body different gifts to people. And these gifts are to be used for the benefit of the church. And so some people have um, one gift, some have multiple gifts, some have behind-the-scenes gifts, some have upfront gifts. For example, you may have someone who's a gifted speaker or singer, and then you have someone who's gifted at helping people and counseling people and ministering to people. And so all of these gifts work together. Now, in our thinking, when you receive a gift, it's about you. It's your gift. You get to do whatever you want with your gift because it's given to you. But spiritual gifts are not given for you. They're given to you for somebody else. So God gives you a gift, not so you can look in the mirror and go, I'm a great singer. I'm a great builder. I'm a great counselor. I'm so helpful. No, the other people get the benefit of you just stewarding the gift God has allowed you to possess. He relates it to the human body. That in the human body, there are, there are external features, the mouth, the eyes, the ears, but there are internal features too that don't get much glory. I mean, let's hear it for the pancreas today. Yeah. Gallbladder? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we don't... We don't in fact, if you held up your gallbladder, someone would probably lose it right here in the church service. You know, that's kind of gross. Like, oh, spare me, Pastor, the, that, ugh, that slimy stuff inside. You know, but show me beautiful eyes. Show me beautiful hair. Show me beautiful skin. That's what I like. Well, those are all external. But all of those work together in the human body to make life possible and to make life beautiful. And so as he describes all this, he says, you know, you all have these gifts. And if you're not careful, these gifts can end up being very hollow if you don't include within them this operational thing called love. Because he says, you could sing and speak like angels, but if you lack love, you're like a hollow gong. You're just making noise. It doesn't mean anything to anybody. He says, you can, uh, you can have great wisdom to fathom all mysteries, but if you lack love, you... You really accomplish nothing. You, see, you can have faith that can move mountains. That's great faith. But if it's not emanating from a heart of love, at the end of the day, it matters zilch. So you could even um, die for your faith. You can give your body to the flames. And, and if it's not driven by love for people and love for God, he says, he says you end up um, accomplishing absolutely nothing. He says, anything minus love equals nothing. Because love by itself equals everything. That if love is not part of the equation, it's futile. So he tells us in this 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. Love, love is not boastful, it's not envious, it's not proud, it keeps no record of wrongs. He goes through all these descriptions of love, beautiful descriptions, probably some verses some of you have heard at weddings. And, and even though he's not talking about marriage in here, it's very applicable to marriage because it's applicable to any relationship. But then he gets to verse 7. And I think verse 7, it struck me one day when I read this verse of how powerful this verse is, that if we would just master these four things, if this was, this was descriptive of the kind of love that flows through us, that your marriage, your relationship with your kids, your relationship with your friends and the people around you would be so amazing because of these things. 
So before we actually read the scripture and talk about them, I'm going to ask if you pray with me today that God would begin a transformation in your heart. And and for those of you who know Jesus and feel like he's changed you, he would even change you more to become the kind of loving person that Jesus was. So Father, thank you for your word. We ask you to speak to us, through us today, as we open it up, Lord, and that our hearts and our actions would be changed because of it. pray in Jesus' name, amen. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm just going to read um, one and a half verses. Verse 7 says, It, meaning love, always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Now you notice four words, and each word is is preceded by another word. The same word, always. Not occasionally, not it mostly does this. It says, if, if love is truly present, here's what it'll do. It'll always protect It will always trust. It will always hope. It will always persevere. And this kind of love is unfailing. Don't you want that kind of love? I I believe we all are hungering for that kind of love in our lives. A love that stands strong no matter what goes on around us, no matter what happens, that we maintain that love because because love secures the relationship. And so each week we're going to unpack one of these character traits about love. And the, the first one is that love always protects. What does that mean? It means that I will do whatever it takes to safeguard a healthy relationship. It means that I'm a safe person to be with. It means that the environments that I create for the people in my life are safe environments. That one of the most basic needs of a human is to feel safe. In fact, I know that about children. I was just at a conference called the Orange Conference. And Pastor Sam and I noted that they have different stages of development of children. And the very first stage is the stage of infancy. And what kids need more than anything else during that stage is safety. And so we go to great lengths to provide kids safety. I mean, I, it is so profound today that, that we do so much more than, than our generation did or my parents' generation did for us. I mean, kids grow up now and they're in car seats. I, I'd never sat in a car seat my entire life. I didn't grow up with bicycle helmets. Our kids did. We have child gates. We have protective locks and safety mechanisms on cabinet doors. We have, we have medicine bottles that even adults can't get open because they're child safe. And we do all these things to protect our kids. Why? Because kids need to feel safe. And we live in a dangerous world. That's why in schools it's so critical that, that kids go to a place where they feel safe. If there's bully, bullies around, if there are people that are going to hurt them, we don't like that. So when you take your child to our nursery or early elementary or, or, or preschool elementary, we want your child to feel safe. That's why one of the greatest things we can do is provide a friendly, consistent face. That when a child sees that face week after week, says, this is like family to me. And they just feel safe and they can play with their toys or eat their snacks, or do whatever. But if a child feels fearful, you can just see that in their body language. Now, when I was in um, elementary school, I, re- I was reminded of the fact that, that while love always protects, which the converse would be, it never hurts, I have to admit that there are sometimes love will inflict pain, but only when it's trying to save you from a greater pain. So when you discipline your kids, you know, my dad used to say, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you, and I thought that was a big lie, because it sure hurt me. But really what he's trying to do is help me learn self-discipline to not become the kind of person or the kind of teenager or young adult 
who's going to waste his life. He's going to miss out on things because I didn't get this thing under control, maybe my language, maybe my habits. And so discipline, inflicting a degree of pain now, is to save me from the greater pain later. I remember immunizations when I was a kid. Pain experienced now to save me from the pain of a disease later. And I hated, I hated getting shots. And I don't know what it was like for you, but my generation at my school in this little town of Milton, Wisconsin, we would walk into the gymnasium, a cold gymnasium, and we would stand in lines. I mean, it just felt like Nazi Germany. We were in lines like this, <laughs> stepping up and bearing our, our, our arms, and they would take some alcohol, cotton, rub it on your arm, and then this, this heavy-set nurse in a white outfit with a, with a syringe and a needle that had to be that long would come up and smile, and then she'd stick that needle in my arm and pump stuff in there to keep me from getting sick. There was a girl, name was Susan Griffin. She passed out a few people in front of me, just like, oh. I said, no, shot day. I, yeah, this is the worst day. I love school. I love recess. I love lunchtime. I love everything about school. I, I even loved Iowa testing. That's when you number two pencil and you color in all these little... I love that compared to this day. By the way, I always wonder why they call it Iowa testing. It makes me think of, were the smartest kids from Iowa? Is that where they kind of set the standard? Are any of you from Iowa? Okay, there's some Iowans here. Yeah, they had to get rid of you to keep the level high, right? That's, ah. and we didn't have Wisconsin testing. We had Iowa testing. But shot day was like, I don't want to go to school today. I want to be sick today. I don't want to get a shot and stand in line. And, and, the, and I heard from my dad. When he went to World War II in, in the Philippines, he said, yeah, they gave me 15 shots before I went overseas. I went, oh, I don't want to be in the military. <laughs> I, I can handle the tanks and the artillery and the hand grenades. I just can't handle the needles. Please don't get in the military. So they would give the shot. But it's all the, the initial pain, which is very minor now. It's just preserve you from a greater pain down the road. But really, we should be the people that others feel like they're not going to be hurt physically, spiritually, emotionally when they are with us. So the Bible tells a lot about about um, love protecting. And you know, it made me think of, of egg carton crates because um, eggs are real fragile. Eggs are very fragile. By the way, these are, these are different colored eggs because we have a neighbor who has real chickens that lay real eggs. And so that's the color. When they're real, they come like this. Just kidding. The white ones are good too. Um, but here, I'm just going to throw these out there. And, and watch how people just... No, watch. Watch. Watch how people catch an egg. They don't high-five and go like this. They do it very gently. Like, watch this. I'm just going to... Just kidding. <laughs> There's this... And it, it's a thin, thin shell around these eggs. And you need a container that really cradles them and keeps them safe. And that's, that's like people. People need to be cradled and kept safe because they're fragile. And there's some very fragile people. The Bible says we've got to be careful to protect for example, how does love protect? It protects by defending the weak. Preventing the weak. God is a heart for the small, the struggling, those that are considered insignificant. There's a number of scriptures, but here's one from Psalm 68.5. A father to the fatherless, the defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. You'll notice all through scripture that God has a, he seems to have heart for the widows and the orphans. Why? Because children were often discarded. 
Like, you know, your parents are gone, nobody loves you, you know, go, go find a way. Or widows, you know, you're used up, your husband's died, you're of no value, we're going to ignore you. And, and God says, I care for those people. They're in a very um, weak state in their life. They need to be cared. And so church, care for the widows. Care for the orphans. Take care of them. That's what real religion is, he says. Another group that he says is very um, fragile are the immigrants, the foreigners. And there's a lot of scriptures that talk about coming along beside the foreigners who are trying to adjust to a new land. And there, there are instructions given to farmers to don't, don't take every piece of, uh, uh, of, of fruit and vegetable out of, your, out of your fields when you harvest. Leave some of it there for the foreigners to come and glean it so that they can eat. And we live in a culture even today where immigrants are coming into countries and, and sometimes we say, I don't want any of those people. I don't want them to be my neighbors. And yet God says, love those, the foreigners. I love them because they're in need and they're in a place of great weakness. They've just lost everything. Love them. We, we protect by sheltering the vulnerable. Psalm 116.6. The Lord protects the unwary. When I was brought low, he saved me. The image God gives for church leaders, and actually it's an image that he applied to himself, is that we are shepherds and people are sheep. Could have used a lot of different animals, but chose sheep because sheep are, are wanderers. Sheep can be very vulnerable to the elements and, and to the wolves. And so he calls us as leaders to look at people like sheep who need shepherding. They don't need herding. They need shepherding. They need someone to come and look for them when they've wandered off to bring them back home, to bind up their wounds, to, to right them when they've rolled on their back and, and they're downcast and can't get up. He says, that's how you should treat sheep. Be, be gentle with them. And that's why you see pictures of Jesus like with a lamb over his shoulder. The scripture says God carries his lambs in his arms. Why? Because he's a good shepherd. We are to be like a shepherd to people. I, I look oftentimes in our culture that elderly people oftentimes become very vulnerable my dad, in his older age, as his mind started to go, would get phone calls from solicitors. And they would tell my dad that at this stage of life, that, that they would, they would um, capitalize on a fear that he needed this. And so my dad would start uh, agreeing and buying things over the phone that my mom would actually find out later and get upset with. My mom doesn't get mad much, but she got upset with these things. She would call them back up and tell him, you stop selling stuff to my husband. We don't need it. We don't want it. We're returning it. And people try to capitalize on fears about health care and insurance and all sorts of things and investments and take advantage of people. I think of Mary, the little teenage girl, when she became pregnant through the Holy Spirit. She's carrying this, this son of God within her, and she tells her, her husband, the man pledged to be her husband, but at that time and day, it was actually called a husband. So Joseph hears from Mary that she's pregnant, but God did it. And Joseph, as any man would, go, would, would think, right. Uh, this isn't going to work out for me. So he decides, I'm, I can't marry you. But here's the beautiful thing that Joseph did. It says in Matthew 1, 19, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. He could have gone down the street, told his whole family, raised his arms and said, my wife's been messing around with other guys. She says it's from God. I know it's not. I cannot believe she did. This marriage is off. No, he says, I, I think she made a big mistake. I love her enough that I'm just going to quietly sever 
the relationship and move on. Of course, he didn't do that. But the fact that he wanted to protect her and shelter her in her vulnerable state. I look at people today, and we live in a tabloid media that likes to go on YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and blast people and expose people and share our hurt and our anger toward people. And and to me, that's not a godly way to deal with your frustrations and anger. Deal with it quietly. Deal deal with it uh, under the radar of the public. They don't need to be brought into the loop. Deal with with that person. Here's another way you protect a person. Um, Forgive the wrongdoer. Proverbs 17, 9. Whoever would foster love covers over an offense, but whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. Covering an offense. You ever get offended? What do you do with that? Does it make you angry? Does it make you want to get revenge? Or do you cover it? It doesn't mean you deny it was sin. But forgiveness means I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cover the matter. In fact, one of the definitions of forgiveness is that idea of covering, that God has provided a covering. We're covered by his blood because, because the, the debt has already been paid. When Peter denied Jesus, you know what Jesus did? He covered his sin. He said, Peter, do you love me more than these? And three times he, he talked to Peter and asked him the same question, as if he was saying, the three times you denied me, you now affirmed me three times. And we're going forward. And Peter became the rock upon which the church was built. 1 Peter 4.8 carries the same principle forward in the New Testament. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over not just a sin, but a multitude of sins. And then here's, here's something else that love does. It, shelter, excuse me, it shields the exposed. Proverbs 27.18. The one who guards a fig tree will eat its fruit, and whoever protects their master will be honored. Now that verse really spoke to me because it, it said whoever protects their master. We don't think of protecting the people above us, our bosses, our parents, our church leaders. We look at those people. Those people are responsible. They should know better. But sometimes leaders make mistakes. And sometimes leaders commit sins, sometimes horrible sins. And wise is the person that says, I am going to protect that leader. I could go public. I could send a letter out to everybody. I could tell the rest of my siblings. I could blast all this out, but I'm not going to do it. And the Old Testament, there's this beautiful story from the book of Genesis. It's, it's, it's in chapter 9. Noah had just endured the flood. He's, he's reestablished a plantation. He's got a vineyard, grows grapes, and he makes some wine. Well, he, he probably didn't know that if you drink too much wine, it does stuff to you. So it says that he was left exposed on the floor of his tent. So this picture, well, not, don't picture it real good, but... Think about this. In this tent over here is an older man who's laying naked. He's passed out. So his oldest son, Ham, walks in there and goes, Oh, gee, I can't erase that from my mind now. Oh, man, I cannot believe my dad. The guy who built the ark who trusted God is laying fully exposed, vomit on the side. He's laying there in the tent. I cannot believe it. His other two brothers hear of that. You know what they do? It says they took a garment, walked in backwards, laid it over their father and left. Did not even look at him. They covered his weakness. Ham, the guy that came in first, the son exposed his father, told everybody about his father, but the other two says, we, our, our response is to protect our father. We're going to give him the dignity of a covering. And so I think there are times in our lives where even though someone has, has fallen, someone has sinned above you, you cover them because that's what love does. So here are some specific 
ways, I think, in relationships that we can practice a protective kind of love. And I'm going to go real quickly through these, but I want to talk first about um, family and, excuse me, friends and strangers, just people in general, and then move to our kids, if you're a parent or even a grandparent, and then the marriage relationship. And I'm just going to give a couple examples of how I think a protective love would work. But first of all, with, with people and friends, use your manners. I think when you use manners, it communicates that I value you. And what do manners look like in case you've grown up in a culture that didn't practice it? Let me just tell you. It means I open the door for another person. It means I don't sit down until until the the woman at the head of the table or the who's made the meal sits down. It means I say thank you and I say please. It it means that I address people properly. It, it, It just means that when someone else walks in the room, they acknowledge they're there. When, when a guy uses manners, we have a certain term we use for him. He's called a what? A gentle man. Not a harsh man, a gentle man. Because he treats people like eggs. The most excellent way, I guess, is what I'd say. That was for you, Barry. So, I was at Chick-fil-A the other day had a privilege of, of touring the headquarters with Pastor Sam. A friend of mine from high school has a daughter that works on their staff, and so we got to go behind the scenes and see things. But the man who took us on this tour came to Chick-fil-A about 13 years ago, I think it was, and he was retired. He just came to Chick-fil-A to see the place, and someone introduced him to the president, Truett Cathy. He was the founder of Chick-fil-A. So when he meets uh, Mr. Cathy, he says... Um, he says, sir, it's nice to meet you. He goes, oh, don't, don't call me sir. Just call me Truett. He said, I, I'm sorry. My mama always told me. When I talk to a gentleman, I always address him as sir. So if it's okay with you, you'll always be sir to me. He said, I want you to come down to my office at 10 o'clock. So Truett Cathy walks away, and, and this guy, who's, he's retired. He's just visiting Chick-fil-A. says, am I in trouble? Like, what's going on here? What happened was, Truett Cathy sat down with him and says, I want to hire you. And he's been working for Chick-fil-A ever since. He says he loves it. He didn't even need a job. But you know why Truett Cathy hired this guy? It's because he used manners. He was so impressed. That, that was a value of theirs. That's why when you go into a Chick-fil-A, and you will not get this at McDonald's, you will not get this at Burger King, I don't know if you'll get it at any other restaurant, someone who will say, it's my pleasure to serve you. Because manners matter. Here's something else that I think we should communicate to any person, but especially to friends, is refuse to participate in gossip. What is gossip? It is personal information about someone else. It may be true, might be rumored, that can hurt someone if it went public. And sometimes in Christian circles, we say, well, I'm just sharing prayer concerns. I'm just concerned about that person, and and you need to know what's going on. And, you know, I am so repulsed when people talk about other people. It's like a pet peeve of mine. Like, if you're not trying to solve that issue in the relationship, then why are you telling me? If you're telling me how bad your boss is or how, how lousy that person is or how unfaithful that person is, then go talk to that person, resolve it. If you love them, you would do that. But nothing, nothing gets better by you telling me other than you make me think worse of that other person. And the Bible says some pretty heavy things about what gossip does to relationships, and and God doesn't like it. So don't participate at all in gossip. Here's something about children. Two things about children. 
listen well to kids. I'm always amazed when I hear a parent whose child committed a tragedy. You know, maybe they put a bomb in a high school or went on a shooting spree or, or maybe committed suicide, and the parent says, like, I had no clue. How, did you, how could you have no clue? What kind of conversations are you having with your kids? Because we as parents have an obligation to talk with our children. But I, I don't mean talk at our children. Talk with them. Listen to them. How was your day? Tell me about it. And if your kids aren't opening up to you, it's because they don't feel safe. And I didn't feel safe in my home, so I found safe places at youth group. But ideally, our kids ought to be able to talk to our families about the issues so we can deal with them, we can help them through the struggles that they're going through. Here's another thing with our kids. Do not discipline out of anger. I, I, I told my son that recently because I grew up in a home where my dad would get so mad that, that, that he would vent his anger on us, verbally and physically, and it is very destructive to the little soul inside. And I experienced this just recently. Um, I think I told you I have a little grandson. I think I told you that a couple weeks ago. But I have a little grandson. <laughs> um, cute little guy. We have a lot of fun together. But the other day, he was, he was under the kitchen sink because I had left open the doors trying to um, work on a faucet. And I left the doors open. So he was reaching in there and touching things. And I came just out of my fear saying, hey, stop it, stop it. And just barked at him. And this little guy got up and he, and he, walked, he walked over in a corner and just stood there. I thought, what did I just do? What, what did I just do to that guy? I, I, wasn't, I didn't hit him. I didn't raise my hand. And, but I remembered that he grew up when he was a little boy in a very tense environment that created a lot of fear. And so for the last eight months, we've been teaching them that we're safe. You can be yourself with us. And so I imagine when I barked at him, the flashback went, protect myself mode. I'm going to go over there. I don't want my grandkids to be like that. You don't want your kids to be like that. So watch yourself in your anger. And then marriage. Two areas again. One is watch what you share publicly. Now, I know this may seem like a little thing, but I've watched couples, and we've dealt with this with our own marriage, of what my wife shares with her friends. There are certain things that we deal with that's our issues, not their issues. I don't, I don't need them involved in that, that issue. There's things that I might want to share with the staff or the elders. I've got to be careful that, you know, we need to work on that together. Now, there are some times we ask for help, and that's different, but... Sometimes I think in the midst of even like a small group, you throw something out. Well, the other day, we fought over this, and, was, and everyone's kind of shocked. Like, they brought this out to the table in front of everybody, and it's not resolved. This feels really awkward. And then they have this big fight in the car going home. Like, why did you tell everybody that? So be careful what you share with other people about the intimate matters within your own marriage. And then, and this one's going to be especially targeted to the younger people. Guard social media. The number one place for affairs to begin is through social media. And it begins as innocently as, hey, some of my old friends from high school contacted me on Facebook. Because what's happening is old, old relationships with former girlfriends and boyfriends, people we thought were cute or wanted to date, start to pop up and start to drop things. And we don't, we don't think much of it because it's just words on a screen. It's not like I'm touching them or kissing them. But emotionally, I'm starting to bond with that person. I'm starting to find times to sneak away to 
to get on and, and message someone. And I'm going to be so bold to ask you this, that if you can't open up your phone and your Facebook page and your email to your spouse, then you need to learn to do that. Because if you can't let them see what you're saying to other people and who you're interacting with, then there's probably something you're trying to hide. And I, in order to protect my own marriage, I don't want my wife feeling like I'm hiding something. And don't play the game of, you just should trust me. People use that as a cover. If, if, you, trust, if you truly wanted to be able to trust, you say, honey, I will do, this goes both ways, honey, I will do whatever I need to do so that you will trust me more. And social media, I mean, there's a whole article I read called from, from uh, tweeting to cheating. It just goes. And there's a whole, whole website called Ashley Madison who's, whose slogan is, life is short, have an affair. I mean, our culture is encouraging that kind of promiscuity to, to dangle the things out there, to go on a, go on a dating site and see if, you're, if you still have it. And I just say that you're playing with danger with social media when you go down those paths. Now, how am I going to love people that way? What if you feel like, well, pastor, I don't have that kind of love in me. I don't know if I can love with this kind of protective, enduring love. Well, that's how God loves you. And the only way you can love others is to let him love you first. The only way you can be a safe place for others is if he's a safe place for you. And he is. He's a refuge, Scripture says. In fact, here's a verse from um, Psalm 32, verse 7. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I don't know what your background is. I don't know what you've been through. I don't know how you've been treated by your parents and, and your spouse, or your kids, or the people around you, but I do know this. You are safe with him. 